This afternoon we explore one of the important uh, discourses of the Buddha. It's the uh, 22nd discourse in the middle-length discourses. It's the simile of the snake. And it in fact contains two important similes, simile of the snake and simile of the raft. What I would like to do in time with you is just to give a general uh, overview, draw out of it some of the deeper aspects uh, of this particular uh, discourse. And uh, incidentally, in exploring uh, discourses, sometimes with uh, Google and other such search engines, one could just in quotation marks put in, such as quotation marks, simile of the snake, and the quotation, and you might find somewhere in the heartland of uh, the net, uh, various uh, commentaries uh, on these discourses or references uh, to them. And some of them can be uh, uh, quite insightful and some of them can be less than quite insightful. All right. So one of the threads which runs through this uh, discourse is a point into that which obstructs or blocks uh, liberation, but it also contains within it a certain exploration of truth and the relationship to it. And in the Buddha's uh, uh, teachings, and perhaps best summarized as we had with the inquiry with Jane uh, earlier on, he looks at the truth from the very conventional position and standpoint. There is dukkha, there is unsatisfactoriness, suffering, problems in this world. Secondly, there are causes and conditions. The fourth, there are ways and means to uh, work with them. And uh, the third one is of uh, the resolution of, or to put it in um, another way, the uh, realization of the ultimate truth of things is very much at the heart of the Dharma. And therefore in the use of truth in its relative and ultimate sense, the relative sense of this is we as much as possible need to be as clear, skillful and as honest as we can in our communications not only with ourselves but with others so that we are staying as, shall we call it a feature of practice here, as close to clear seeing and therefore as close to truth as it possibly can be for us. And that may express itself in the way we use language, in the way we think about things, or sometimes with the unknown and staying in the silence. then goes, and that means that what is important in the Buddha's teachings is not only what is true, but also our relationship to that. And he quite often takes a very pragmatic view. And therefore there is a value for truth, and the pragmatic view of it is to communicate, speak, that which is true and useful. These are the terms he uses in the text. It's true and it's useful. 
And therefore, sometimes we may know something which is true, but it simply is not useful to say. It may intensify the level of suffering for somebody. It may generate a whole amount of confusion. And therefore, in the relationship to truth, the utilitarian or pragmatic value of it is, is it contributing to clarity, to insight, to wisdom, and therefore truth is not proclaimed to be some super mundane, as it were, metaphysical abstract which is out there somewhere, the truth with capital T-R-U-T-H. But taking a more immediate perception of it, seeing when we speak of things which are important for us, communicating clearly and this uh, criteria of its usefulness and that it's true as far as we can see. As we saw with the inquiry today, no matter what we make a comment or statement about in the relative field, it can never be absolutely true. Because we can only refer with our speech to a general truth, like I am happy to be here, but the feeling may change a great deal. I can't change the weather, the other ex uh, example, yet how we live does have impact on our world and our, and our weather, etc. So in this particular discourse, just to come back to the point, there is the simile of the snake. And the simile of the snake is basically, if we're going to touch upon truth, i.e. called the snake, then make sure our relationship to it is very clear. There is truth in the relationship to it. And therefore it means grabbing it by the head and by the tail. And easy. And for those of you who have had, ever had any interesting relationships with snakes <laughs> uh, over the years, may not, like myself and others, have had any interest to actually to grab, particularly a poisonous snake, either by the head or the tail. But these sort of things go on in monasteries. And monks do like to test their, uh, what shall we say, their uh, equanimity, their mindfulness, their uh, skills, or, or whatever. And I think in the last, did I say it? Here in the last DFP, of going into the hut in the monastery of uh, Watsuanmok, Ajahn Patatat, uh, monastery into my hut, and there being rather a young uh, cobra, in the uh, hut and young actually one might think young makes it easier no no young means the poison is even more fresh one has to take even more care with the young poisonous snake and one of the monks I remember Itarit told him about the, 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 the uh, snake and with um, uh, an alarming degree of mindfulness he just walked, to, moved around the small hut, watching head and tail. And then there was a moment, fast moment, and he had head and tail in hand. Well, interesting. And as the Buddha points out in the discourse, 
if one doesn't, and and in this case, either grasp one end or the other, you just get the tail, of course, the head's going to swing round and bite. And if one grasps the head and misses the tail, there can be a tremendous backlash. There's an enormous amount of energy in the snake. And the backlash of it can be so strong, it shakes the hand or the tail rips around. And then you let go and then you bit and bit and again. You have to get the two together. And he compares with this the teachings, uh, his, uh, the Dharma, uh, uh, the, t- the teachings. How easy it can be one grabs the teachings wrongly. And in grasping onto them uh, wrongly or unwisely or unskillfully, rather than it being a vehicle for liberation, it becomes a vehicle for anger or fear or confusion or anxiety. And the example which I gave when I was, uh, from recollection, I was in uh, the Totnes, uh, DFP, was of a person who came on a retreat and he, as others do, as all of us have done, listened to teachings on non-attachment, on letting go, on clinging on to, on holding on to, on being identified with these forms of Dharma teachings familiar to us. And after the retreat, there was a woman who he was very much interested in, personal basis. Slight problem, she was married. And he would talk with her and how very much in the misuse, that means grabbing the snake by the tail here, of understanding of the teachings began to speak to her of non-attachment, letting go of her husband, not being identified with the form of marriage, finding her freedom, and she was all rather impressed with all of this, and it sowed a lot of seeds into her relationship, into her marriage, and then she went off with this guy. The end result of this, it brought a lot of suffering on her good husband. It brought a lot of suffering upon herself. And it also brought a lot of suffering from him. Because it wasn't long before she realized this guy was a charlatan and she dropped him and it was very painful and that the child was involved, etc. It's an, an example or an illustration of misunderstanding just to put it in English politeness terms here, <laughs> to put it here, use the language here, wrongly grasping hold of the teachings, even though the same language is being used. And misunderstanding of the foolish grasping onto the teachings easily can be used, as we all know, to feed the ego, to fuff up the idea of self-importance, to have an attitude of, uh, I know you don't know, for empire building, for all forms of self-gratification. All of that easily can enter into it through misunderstanding the teaching. So the simile is this grasping uh, uh, of, the sn- of, of the snake by the, by the tail.
And then he goes from there into the again into this famous uh, simile of the raft. And remember, it's just a conventional use of language, but it communicates something rather rather deep. And it's not often kind of I think brought out uh, fully enough. So in the dualistic language for a moment, which is used here, it seems like far too many beings are running up and down the near shore. And the near shore is called samsara. And the literal meaning of the word samsara is wandering on from one thing to another. And how easily our life is pushed and pulled by the various forces, caught up in this, then caught up in that. This is samsara. And rebirth in that language is not so much thinking of it in physical terms, next life, but how easily in this present life the ego is being reborn again and again. Ego of I, me and my. This is, and so in the wheel of samsara, rebirth is the rebirth of ego of I, me and my, and the ending of rebirth is the ending of I, me and my. Never mind speculating about what might be in the future. We want to deal with what's being reborn again and again, which hasn't been dealt with. This is called samsara. And it then expresses, as it were, the raft, which is the dharma. And that it's usually translated, but I think it has a deeper meaning as well here, it is usually translated as teachings and practices and the path and the noble way uh, or whatever and therefore we use the raft teachings and practices to come out of this enslavement to going from one thing to another being trapped in all of that to to go to the other shore the dualistic language sometimes can be useful what's beautiful about it and what's a very fresh and um, liberating statement about it is that nothing of the practice and teachings, this is a more relative way of looking at it, nothing of the practice and teachings is worth holding on to or clinging on to. So therefore, once on the other shore, one lets go of the raft, the means, the vehicle, that which served us to reach to the other shore, which referred to in various ways. But I think there's something else as well with this, because it is the reference to the Dharma. And what, uh, what is meant by that? Dharma deals with truth, the truth of things, uh, how we see things. This too, called truth, is whatever way we look at it, is not worth clinging onto. This also is not worth being identified with. And that applies at any level of it. And it's a foolish person who says, I have got the truth. A foolish person who says, that the self arises and says, I have got it. And there are a few people around on this earth who have convinced themselves of it. 
foolish identification. No. Also, also to be let go of. There are, um, I know the truth. Also another I, desperate to let go of the conventional, but easily then the I wants to land somewhere. So it wants to land with I have the truth, or I know the truth, or I've got the truth, or whatever. And once a person has that idea and identifies with that, then there can be the attempt to go round and persuade other poor devils. There they have it. And uh, religion and philosophy and science and spirituality and new age, etc., etc., terribly vulnerable to people having some experience, identifying with it and saying, well, this is the truth. I have got the truth. And therefore trying to squeeze something into the framework of the inner life. There is no encouragement in the simile of the raft to cling to Dharma, teachings, practices, forms, methods, techniques, religion, vehicles, the way, and the Dharma also covers the truth, not clinging to that in any way uh, whatsoever. And thus, truth in its, with power to it, truth which is transforming, enters into situations and makes a significant impact on them, changes them, transforms them, frees us up. And that enters, we could say, that kind of enters into situations, into events. And the receptivity to that is something which changes the life, just as it changed the life of the Buddha, changed the life of men and women for generations upon generations. And even no matter how extraordinary it is that a human being can really be changed at the deepest root of himself or herself, that which makes a change is not worth being identified with. Period. It would be, in Dharma language, a conceited statement to say, I am enlightened. In Dharma language would be a conceited statement to say, I have woken up. I have re- realized. But it says, even I am is a, di- is a conceit. Let alone adding an extra word to it. Mm-hmm. Yes, again. I knew I was going to be asked this immediately. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> it did. It did. <laughs> and this is where there could be the generality, and when it requires a wisdom so that there isn't a grasping of the snake by the tail. And in the grasping of the... Therefore, one must have the freedom to say, I am awake. Freedom to say, I go to Kashai City to beat the drum of deathlessness. One must have the, the freedom to say whatever one wishes. If one keeps using I am and then adding a charged word to it, I have found God, I have found the truth. I am, re- I am realized. In the conventional world, this is grabbing the snake by the tail, in the conventional world, 
two things tend to happen one either has believers or disbelievers we keep going around and say I know the truth I've realised the truth I've discovered my true nature but people are either believers or disbelievers if we say it frequently enough it will have such an impact the eye that it will produce the same response inside of ourselves we'll have doubt the eye keeps going on I am, I am, I am, I am doubt will come but one is terrified to admit it I had a meeting with one person a satsang teacher whose name I shall not tell you though I am tempted but I shall resist the the, I haven't told the story yet. <laughs> Hang on, no, no, nothing to do with Shadiba. And the teacher, using the language of I am that, I am pure consciousness, and had a large number of followers. Then, in his personal life, got into a terrible crisis, a really terrible crisis, which I won't go into the detail of and came down to give satsang one evening one or two hundred people there number of whom were very sincere devoted followers of his and he announced to them I am a fraud I haven't realised I believed I had and I haven't and I am not offering any more satsang Paul that takes courage that takes an uh, extraordinary degree of uh, honesty uh, to uh, say that and he meant it and he kept to it so sometimes there is not with the intention to manipulate a building up of the eye around truth or pure consciousness whatever the language which is being uh, used not realising it's a construction and a mental formation it's a some Samkara, Samskara, not realizing that, just not realizing that. And then something happens. In this case, it was a crisis, family crisis. And then there was a complete crisis. So it still takes a vigilance. What one sees with the text, and if we take the overview of the text there, the Buddha rarely uses this language of I am. Not frequent in the in the text and therefore it's in the tradition of monks there is a rule I remember speaking with Ajahn Sumedho about this uh, a couple of years ago there is a rule that monks are not to ma- allowed to make any claims and it can be a incredibly serious matter you can get thrown out of the order for making claims we who are not monks are not in those rules often we have more freedom and more opportunity to speak more clearly and directly about our range of experiences because this rule of discouraging people to speak about monks that is to speak about their levels of realisation their attainments quote unquote has often inhibited monks from speaking very openly and clearly we're not under that restraint thank goodness I think we're in many respects better off with regard to this we can talk about what we see how we see how we experience what we, un- what we understand with that reminder mindful with the use of the I 
because it could end up as the grabbing the snake by the tail or by the head, whatever. Then it goes uh, on. I'll just take a few, a uh, uh, little bit more there. He says here, and this is a, a well-used statement, quite frequently used in the text, and it it has a it not to be it's very rather important here not to be regarded as some absolute statement. It is a pragmatic use, a skillful use to free us up. So it's not used as some absolute truth. And the statement is, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. It's not used as a weapon against oneself. This is the truth, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. It's used as a skillful means to end the problem. It's used as a skillful means to see things clearly, free from I and my. Not to make some great absolute truth out of it. And when we look at the world in which we live, millions, this is another English understatement, millions of objects which appear to us, we have no relationship to, in terms of I or my or mine with them. Well, if you think of all the things that go on every day in our life, sight, sound, smells, taste, touch, no, no sense of this is who I am, this is mine, this is, this is, uh, belongs to me, I have no sense of. So out of the myriad number of things which come to consciousness around us, a few there is a building of identification with. And this building we want to be extremely vigilant about. And to know ourselves well is to know what our I and my, I means identification with, focuses around. And sometimes we are hardly aware of it until it changes. And then when we get the reaction, whatever that reaction may be, then we know, here is some identification with, here is some problem about, here is some vulnerability about, here is some reaction over. And then we know how some I and my has entered into it. And sometimes we hardly know. The example which comes to to, uh, myself is travelling from uh, England to India uh, every year. We have the school, Pragnivihā school, school of wise abiding. And there is a danger in having money transferred from the West to dear old India and especially Bihar. And the banks in the West, like I went to my NetWest bank to some time ago to transfer some money and when they said India they said oh <laughs> they said you realise there is some risk and they said we call it there, there is a possibility of the money disappearing down the black hole <laughs> and what happens is that the money is sent 
The bank, the sender, swears black and blue. The money left the account. The receiver, called the bank in India, swears black and blue. It never arrived. This is called... And then one may have to put enormous pressure for one or two years, and the track record is, after a couple of years, it turns up. (laughs) Meanwhile, somebody in the bank has made some money out of the interest. This is the method. Sometimes it's painful, as the leprosy clinic run by some dear friends in Nirbudgaya had $55,000, the annual budget, sent to Budgaya, and they said it never never arrived. And then there was panic. How are we going to support the letters? No, no le- lepers, no money for the year. So it's a serious element. Anyway, quick story. So I was on the train. Rather than take the risk, I had maybe whatever, five, six thousand pounds, ten thousand euros, and I put it inside my shirt. <laughs> Along with the passport, everybody knows it. Passport in there, the air ticket in, the, in, in there, and the kitchen sink and everything. It's all down in there, and then it's down inside the shirt, then it's tucked down inside the underpants. You know, really, you know, that, that area is sacred. You really look at it. There. So it wouldn't lose it. I'm on the train at night, and I've been doing this regularly enough over the years since we started the school. So money's there, safe there, get into it. Two-tier AC on that train there. And the first thing I do, just automatic, I, as soon as I wake up in the morning, I go, like that. And I woke up, I'm like, it's gone, man. Like, it's like, wait. And the, 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 the pouch, uh, uh, God, I, I, and I, the sweat, my, my memory of this is armpits, <laughs> wet. <laughs> Didn't realise just how much invested in, in, the, uh, uh, in this. And it does happen. Very okay, it does happen. Either baggage is taken, you know, and it has been heard it slipped. Mm-hmm. Pair of scissors and night, fast asleep, pulled up, person gone. What had happened was the pouch had come out of my underpants in the night <laughs> and it had moved round the back <laughs> of my neck <laughs> and it was hanging down the back. <laughs> Was I a happy traveller? <laughs> <laughs> so the loss, the, the immediate sense of loss, I've got the responsibility of the school, the money, da 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 da. They just brought out all this there. So I could not possibly say it was being equanimous. <laughs> it's only money, <laughs> etc. So sometimes one hardly realises, as I say, the amount of investment and feeling, identification that is built up around something. To know ourselves in the vastness of diversity of this world, which are our vulnerable areas, period. This is not me, this is not myself, this is not mine. Just as it applies to the outer world that we live in, the same relationship to break down the separation of the outer and the inner, because there is no separation, it's a fiction. There can't possibly be any separation of the outer from the inner. Therefore, the relationship to the so-called inner, which is called feelings, which is called moods, which is called mental activity, which is called the streams of thought, 
which is called perceptions, which is called emotions, which is called samkaras, formations, or, or whatever, is also to be regarded. This is not me, this is not myself, this is not who I am. And this statement is not in any way a encouragement for withdrawal. It's not a statement of detachment. It's a reminder to us just to learn to see things as they are. Free from the shadows, shall we say, of I and my. Therefore, this is a feeling which is arising. This is a thought which is arising. This is a state of mind which is arising. This is consciousness arising. This is mindfulness arising. This is awareness arising. This is whatever. Sight, sound, smells, taste, touch. And therefore, it's more an intimate connection with rather than one overshadowed by um, um, projections. And with this view, it cuts out the agitations. Tremendous amount of agitation is is, uh, thus uh, cut out. Then he goes, we'll touch upon this a little bit, into another deeper uh, level. All the issues or the agitations of life has be prior to the agitations or the restlessness or the boredom or the greed or the anger or the confusion whatever prior to it arriving there is a view and the view is around either what exists or what doesn't exist this is the assumed position prior to anything that happens. So if you and I think of anything which causes any waves in our life, in any way whatsoever, there has to be some perception or view around either what's existing or what's not existing. And if you can think of anything in life which is a problem around something either existing or not existing, praise the Lord because you'll be the first in history I suspect. We can't think of any issue of life which is problematic, which is not around something which is either appearing to exist or it appears that it doesn't exist in some way or other. So the inquiry, the exploration and the great challenge of life is to be able to accommodate existence and non-existence. And sometimes, as we know, that which exists ceases to exist rather quickly. And that which was not existing can come to exist rather quickly. And that which is existing can seem to go rather slowly. And that which is non-existing can seem to arise and happen rather slowly. We don't often know. So, in this um, statement of the Buddha here, it is to look at existence and non-existence. The more I attach to existence of a thing, of a person, of a place, of an item, or whatever, the more clinging to existence, the more fear of non-existence period. The more clinging to existence, the more fear of non-existence. Whatever it might be. And that 
equally applies to life and death. And then, in this famous remark of the uh, Buddha, he says, all that he is concerned about is the issues of suffering, problems, anguish, difficulties for human beings and their resolution. And with that, point out again, it's not creating ideology out of truth or out of God or out of reality, whatever. It's to look at that and therefore truth is not an... There is no, no such statement of the Buddha called absolute truth. Never, you wouldn't be seen dead uttering such a statement. It, truth, when it is effective, has an impact on our life which contributes us to understanding things, opening up our heart, realizing insights and understanding. So when truth enters into the event of life, it has some transformative impact. There is no statement of some absolute truth. It does not appear because the Buddha takes a very intimate, down-to-earth exploration of truth in the midst of things. Very different sense with regard to it. So, finally, there is the encouragement to let go of what's not ours. And the greater the capacity that we have to let go of holding on to body, feelings, perceptions, thoughts, consciousness, let go of that, and just seeing it as belong, belonging to nature, itself becomes a doorway to great freedom, an open doorway to great freedom. So this is the, the flow of the discourse. What I would like to do today is to make into five groups and with the five groups take five different themes uh, from uh, here and I'll do that uh, af afterwards. So Jeanette could start the count. One. And up to, counting up to five. Two, three, four. Five. One. Two, three, four, five. Two. All right. Terrific. <laughs> All right. So the uh, first group First group um, explores the relationship to the teachings. What is a wise and skillful way to relate to the teachings? And what is a wise and skillful way to relate to truth? Whether it's at the conventional level that Jane and I uh, discussed in the inquiry today and whether it also has to be discussed at that, that deeper uh, level there. Which, as it were, all the conventional, as it were, rests in, like waves, rest in the ocean. The um, second area for uh, exploration is this simile of the raft. What are some of the signs or intimations or indications of a freedom in life which doesn't have it in it the idea, the view, the belief I am going from A to B i.e. the raft travelling across the water are there intimations in your uh, life of natural freedom of being shall we say 
in which we are not involved or indulging in the self going from A to B. This is a bit we touched upon earlier today. Yeah. Yeah, so that, as it were, we bring the other shore closer, closer. We want to get it closer than our thoughts, closer than our views about ourselves. The third area is for group three, that means. Uh, I like this group three to look at the relationship to this encouragement and, and called a noble student of the Buddha. So, so some realization here. This is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. Are there any areas in our life where there's I, me and my going on which shows some clinging and holding on to which is causing problematic problems for consciousness and therefore a clearer perception without any withdrawal or distancing intimate with seeing clearly yet free or largely free from the view this is not mine this I am not this is not myself the distinguishing feature between three and this is not mine might refer to possessions and ownership and one has to include those of us who have the have landed with children in this life, whether chosen or unchosen, <laughs> that that very famous statement of Karl Gibran, one of the great statements about children, that do not think of these children as ours, but they are just... Mm-hmm. Go on. Sorry, Guruji, what's that? Your children are not your children, they are the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. This is a true, these, these children are not mine, they are just sons and daughters of life. They're, they're, and I've had to remind myself of this many times, I have to say, and still do. And, um, and out of that, still not withdrawing, still love, still support, but these children are not mine. Just whatever there so and then the uh, that's what's that the third group right and then the, um, that, was the that was the what that was the third group, that was the third group. lovely <laughs> and then um, with the um, fourth group what is the relationship to existence and non-existence <laughs> was there a witty mark from the uh, far extremes she knows the answer oh she knows the answer oh good alright okay <laughs> What is the relationship to existence and non-existence? That's the fourth group. And then there's this final statement that the Dharma is clear and open. What's our response when we hear that? The Dharma is clear and open. What, what, What beautiful statement. What emerges out of that? And the Buddha said, for a realized human being who knows the, the, the liberating uh, truth, he says, it is very potent statement. It is, is, is as obvious as color is to a person with good eyesight. It's that clear, that obvious. Paul. Therefore, when he says there's only one truth and it has no second, Paul. beautiful statement.